Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. As was said earlier by Patrick, my name is Mike Minter. I'm actually on staff at the uh, Franklin campus, and they take me out of mothballs every once in a while and allow me to preach, so I'm up here today. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Romans chapter 8, and I have to tell you, in, uh, <clears throat> I've been preaching for about 50 years, and this is cruel and unusual punishment from Jeff Simmons to have any pastor try to cover Romans chapter 8 in 35 minutes. Cannot be done, but we're going to have to do it, and I've already complained for a minute, so I better get on this. It is considered to be one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Some people consider it to be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. It covers a large range of subject matters. It talks about life in the Spirit, talks about future glory, talks about being more than conquerors, so we've got to cover all that in the time that we have. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the first few verses in chapter 8, and we are going to pray and then dive in. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first section here is life in the spirit. <clears throat> we see a statement, uh, the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Two laws, just like the law of gravity. These are spiritual laws. And God starts out in this particular chapter, the Apostle Paul, as he writes, he says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, for the first 26 years of my life, I lived with a lot of condemnation because I didn't know this verse was in the Bible. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't have understood it. 
because I was under a religious system that every time I failed, I had to sort of get myself back in the fight and try to, try to you know, get my letter, my spiritual letter sweater up to speed where I would eventually be able to enter into the kingdom of God by my human goodness, lifting myself up by my own spiritual bootstrap, so to speak. But here, it says there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning that Christ Jesus has taken my condemnation at the cross, paid the penalty, it's done, it is finished, which is what Jesus said at the cross. Now, <clears throat> a, little, a little law here when it talks about the law of the spirit of life and the law of, of sin and death. Through Adam came sin, came death. Through Christ comes righteousness, comes life. You either are in the line of Adam facing death, eternal death, or you are in the line of Christ facing eternal life, which we receive the moment we receive Christ. At the age of 26 in Copenhagen, Denmark, I left the line of Adam and I entered the line of Christ. And I therefore realized there was no condemnation in my life. The law, here's the problem with the law. The law tells me where I should be and condemns my every attempt to get there. You cannot keep the law. And people that try to keep the law just frustrate themselves. It isn't that the law is bad. Romans 7 says the law is holy and just and good. The problem with the law is I can't keep it. <clears throat> the law is always condemning me. Nobody has ever once kept any one of the Ten Commandments. That might shock you. Well, I've never killed anybody you have in your mind. I've never committed adultery you have in your mind. Nobody has kept the Ten Commandments. And yet, the religious world is thinking that they are trying to keep the Ten Commandments or some moral code, and it constantly condemns them. James 2.10 says, if you fail in one part of the law, you failed in all of it. All of it. And so here we have this great chapter in victory, this incredible chapter. The law cannot save. All the law can do is condemn. Here's something else the law does. The law stirs up my flesh. Romans 7 tells you that. Here, here's, what, here's what it means by stirring up my flesh. When you put yourself under any kind of law, your fallen human nature wants to break it. You doubt that? Go out into the country and you'll see a sign that says, no shooting, it's riddled with bullet holes. Why? Because it told the people don't shoot. If you're walking through Central Park in New York and you pass 300 benches, all painted the same, all green, and you get to one bench and there's a sign that says don't touch wet paint. You got to touch it. You got to see if it's tacky. You got to see if it's dry yet. And you'll see a thousand fingerprints on there. You know why? Because you were told not to do it. That's exactly what the law does. You, you leave the room and you say, now, honey, you got a three-year-old there. Mommy bought a brand new lamp. Now, I don't get near the, don't touch the lamp when I leave the room. The minute you leave the room, first thing the child's going to go to. Why? Because the law stirs up our flesh. It stirs up our flesh. And we can't keep it. All it does is frustrate us over and over and over again. Look at verses 5 through 8. We read this. And I'm not going to probably read the entire chapter. We won't have time. For those, uh, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. 
But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. This does not say that if you aren't led by the Spirit, that you're automatically lost because nobody is led perfectly by the Spirit of God. But the moment that you're born again, something takes place. You are given a whole new look on life. It's called sanctification. This is when you're justified, you're declared righteous when you're born again. Now the sanctification process starts. The Holy Spirit starts convicting you. Your mind is now illuminated to understand the deep things of God. You have a bent. You have a bent to wanting to follow Jesus. It's a bent. You're not there yet. People might say, you know, if you're going in this direction, you repent, you do a 180. Nobody has ever done a 180. A 180 would make me as perfect as God. What happened to me was I did about a half a degree turn, and I'm still sort of doing this <laughs> after all these years. So, uh, but the point being is, it's, it's my bent, it's my direction. In a couple of weeks, I'll be speaking at the main campus, and I'm going to be talking about the assurance of salvation. And now some people are certain they have eternal life when in fact they really don't. But we don't have time to get into that right now. But this chapter does speak to that issue, it's it certainly to some degree. Verses 9 through 11. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And this is the same righteousness that raised Jesus from the dead. This, this chapter has so much theology in it, and people get afraid of the word theology. It simply means the study of God. And what is in this chapter is, is an understanding of what takes place at the moment of the new birth. Then it's going to talk about future glory, and then it's going to talk about us being more than conquerors. But the word, the term spirit is mentioned 19 times in this, in this one chapter. And so what it's saying here is, is that once the Spirit of God indwells you, and here's a beautiful thing that takes place. Once the Spirit of God indwells you, God illuminates your mind to understand the deep things of God. The Bible says, eye has not seen nor ear heard. Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him, but God has revealed them unto us, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows anything about another man unless the Spirit of God reveals it to him? Neither can you know anything about God unless the Spirit of God reveals it. And that is revealed through Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's something else that is taking place when we are born again, born from above. And, and my great desire is I don't know everybody here, but I'm trusting that by the end of this message, you'll understand what it really means to be converted and to enter in to the kingdom of God. Verses 12 through 17, we read this. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. This is talking about a person who is not converted. They're living by their sinful nature. 
But if the spirit put, uh, is put, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And this has to do with whether or not you've actually been born again. And it talks about how the Spirit allows us to call God Abba, Father, Daddy. So now it's talking about a real, genuine, personal relationship that we enter into once we understand that salvation is a gift. You can't keep the law to earn it. That won't work. Once you've come to Christ and Christ alone... The Spirit indwells you, gives you the ability to understand the deep things of God, and gives you a new power and authority over sin. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein, Romans 6 says. Perfect? No. Struggling day after day? Yes. But moving in a direction. Your life is probably a little bit like this. That's the life of a Christian. Falling, and if you go back and you look in Scripture, you see that every single great saint had struggles up and down the line all throughout. Here's something interesting. We're going to jump down now. Now we're going to look at future glory. I love this particular portion of Scripture. I think it's just fascinating. I wish we had more time, but let me just dive in here a little bit. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's just pause for, for a moment. Paul says, I reckon that the present sufferings, and right now, every one of you is suffering to some degree. Marriage problem, child, child problem, financial problem, health. You live in a fallen world, so you are suffering, some more than others. He says, I, I, I reckon the fact, I consider the fact that the sufferings of this present world, if you put them on a scale, he's actually wanting you to put them on scales, is not worth compared to the glory that shall come. Because over here, it is temporal. The, the, the sufferings, as Paul says, are momentary and light. My sufferings don't feel momentary and light, but Paul says they are. And they're momentary and light because life is short, and the weight of those sufferings is just temporal. Over here is all of eternity. And so Paul is saying that the sufferings of this present time can't even be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. He's saying, if you'll just put that glory over here, it will send those pains of this life into space. Boom. No comparison. It's almost like if something is on a negative scale of 10, then over here, it's on an infinite scale. There is, he says, you can't compare it. You cannot make the comparison. He's driving home the fact that our lives must be embraced by an eternal value system and an understanding of these things. By the way, it goes on here and it says this, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This particular creation that we live in right now goes on to say, for the creation in verse 20 was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He is saying that this present world, this physical world, is groaning to be released. You know why? Because back in Genesis, when God cursed the earth, he didn't curse man, he cursed the earth, 
And that cursed earth is filled with tidal waves, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, all the things that, just, that are just hard. And it says that the creation is groaning to be released from that. And that day is coming. That day is coming when Jesus will release this present bondage of this world and he will take this present world and he will restore it. You know, we often say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, in some respects that's true, but technically it's not. This world is our home. Because God is not going to throw this earth away, he's going to redeem it. He's going to free it from its bondage, and you and I will live back here. Whether you're going to live in Nashville or not, I don't know. That's probably your choice. But we will come back here. Here's something else. It says that this world is, 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 is falling apart. It's in frustration, according to Romans uh, uh, 8, 19, and 20. And it says there's a frustration, and there's always been a frustration. Mankind, outside of Christ, believes that he is going to overcome this frustration through the next medical discovery or the next computer or the next whatever. He really believes that. He really believes that he's going to usher in utopia, but it will never happen. It can't. It can't happen because this is a fallen world, and this world is under the condemnation of sin and the law, and mankind is frustrated, and God uses that frustration to drive people to himself. I've had the privilege of sometimes speaking at a college uh, or a, a high school, and, uh, and I've often brought up the fact, I'll, I'll say, look at how much man is increasing in knowledge which is designed to solve problems. How come our problems aren't going away? Why are our problems uh, at an exponential rate just as much as the knowledge is? Because knowledge is just accumulation of information. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge, and you have to have the book of wisdom to do it. If you don't, the world just continues to spiral down. And that's the answer to all the problems of life. That's it right there. So if you've gotten anything today, you got that. You can give me $5 on the way out. Um, here's something else. When it talks about this world sort of decaying and going downhill, if you go back in time, and I, people will, will argue with me over this, but every single successive generation, though it's imperceptible, is not as strong or mentally as strong as the former generation. Now, I, I, my kids are all smarter than I am. My grandkids are smarter than I am. But over a long, long period of time, it will pan out that I am smarter than people way down the line. How do I know? Because I can go back and I can look at Adam being able to name all the animals instantly, most brilliant person that ever lived outside of Christ. And then as you go back in time, you see the great pyramids. The pyramids in Egypt, one of them has 2.5 million stones perfectly put into place. No dynamite, no electricity, no big uh, John Deere movers and all that. They quarried some of the stones that weigh 50 tons 200 miles away. We can't lift 50 tons today. We can't even begin to lift 50 tons today. And by the way, the mathematics in that is greater than the math that we have today. We have to use computers to understand the math that the Egyptians had. And then you look at Machu Picchu, and you look at all the great things, the Great Wall of China, 5,000 miles long, and we can't complete Mac Hatcher. <laughs> it's true. We're going downhill, folks. 
We're not evolving, we're devolving. It's right here and it's observable every single day. There will never be another Mozart. There will never be another Da Vinci. There will never be another Isaac Newton. There will never be an, another Beethoven, ever, or a Michelangelo. We can't do those things, and we don't know how they did it. I'll tell you how they did it. They were brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and there's less brilliance as time goes on. I'm sorry to ruin your day. Here we go. <laughs> when we look at this text, and it talks about this groaning, it goes on, and it says, it says, well, let's jump down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Three groans. It says, the earth is groaning. It says, we are groaning. And it says, the Spirit groans. Three different groans. To groan is to want to be released from something. And even the Spirit is groaning and has to intercede on our behalf. That's what it's talking about here. This chapter, you could spend several months te teaching through this chapter. There was a, uh, a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a great pastor from many years back. back. He took 11 years to teach through the book of Romans. 11 years. Most of his congregation was dead by the time he finished. But at any rate, uh, that's how deep this is. You can just go on for months in this one chapter, but we're just moving quickly through it. And now we look down at this. It says in verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, when we look at Romans 8, 28, sometimes it becomes a cliche. We can, we can throw this out when somebody's going through a hard time and say, well, you know, all things work together for good. It is true. It is true that all things work together for good. But it doesn't say all things are good. It says, simply says they work together for good. Let's take a look at, at a, an example in Scripture. You go back and you see Joseph at the age of 17, uh, chapter 37 of Genesis, being uh, given a coat of many colors by his father. And that was a good thing, uh, but his brothers were jealous and that became a bad thing, all right? And then... His brothers, he goes looking for his brothers, which was a good thing, but when he found him, they wanted to kill him, which was a bad thing. And yet when they wanted to kill him, one of the brothers said, let's not kill him. That was a good thing. Let's sell him into slavery. Well, that's a bad thing. But when he got sold into slavery, he worked for a guy named Potiphar. Well, that was a good thing until Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of being an, uh, wanting to commit uh, adultery and to try to rape her. That's a bad thing. But he gets thrown into prison and he's in charge of the prisoners. Well, that's a good thing. But the prisoners have these dreams they can't interpret. Well, that's a bad thing. But Joseph was able to interpret it. Well, that's a good thing. But one of the prisoners was supposed to remember Joseph when he got out, but he didn't. That's a bad thing. But eventually he did get out, which is a good thing. And it goes on and on and on and on and on until he's in charge of all of Egypt. All things work together for good. 
but it didn't look like it was working together for good. And each one of those instances didn't look like it was going to work out. But in God's providence, though we cannot see what God is doing in our lives through hardships, that's why we have to go back and look at Scripture and literally marinate in a text like this. This is why we have to go back and look and see what does God actually say is true, even though I can't see it, feel it, understand it. Over and over again in Genesis 37, it says, and God was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, but did Joseph know God was with him? Did he know it? I think he did, because he never sinned in all that. He didn't, he didn't rebel. He stayed true, and he gave God the glory when it came to interpreting dreams. And so as you're going through that, you, you, you say, you know, how'd this work out? Well, he didn't know. He had no idea how things were going to work out any more than you know how things are going to work out. But if you look back at the whole thing, it worked out. So all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose, even though we may not see all those things. 29, let's see what it says here. Let's, 28 and 29. Well, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Let me pause there. When you go off to college, people will often say, what are you majoring in? Well, I'm going to major in physics or engineering or art or whatever. Our major as Christians is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our major. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. That doesn't mean that I know all that Christ knows, but it means I am capable of thinking the way he thinks because of this book. It allows me to understand how he thinks, all right? And so that's the beauty of this when it, when it makes the, these statements. Uh, th this idea that I am to be conformed to the image of Christ. That being conformed is a lifelong pursuit. It's called sanctification. Justification is when you are declared righteous because of Christ, when you believed in him. Sanctification is that very slow change in which you are growing and becoming more and more mature as time unfolds. That's one of the signs that a person is genuinely a believer. You may struggle, you may have your ups and downs, but I've had people tell me they trusted Christ and they were 10 or 15, and there is nothing. There is no fruit, zero. And I've said to people, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm simply saying I see no evidence that you are because I don't want somebody to make a false profession. Very, very important. So we read this. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's another thing that you can cling to and spend a lot of time on. Because I get up almost every day. I know I shouldn't, but I look at the news. I know I shouldn't. And I get, I go, they're against us. It's all around. They're going to shut us down. They hate us. And Jesus said, yep. The reason the world hates me is because I testify of its evil. And he said, and they're going to hate you too. And I don't like that. I don't like that. But here it says, I'm still more than a conqueror. It says that, uh, that who, can, who can be, excuse me, it says, who can be against me if, if God is for me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Proverbs, uh, uh, Paul says, 
He's given us all things freely to enjoy. What things? Just stuff? No. The joy of knowing that we are more than conquerors. The joy of knowing who we are in Christ. The joy of having his word and understanding these things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul says we're more than conquerors. Listen to these last few words. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither things present or future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is worth claiming and living on. We know the last, the last statement I gave to our church back home after I'd been there for 47, 48 years and I was leaving, I said, here's your, here's your tagline. I used to always give a one-liner to remind people of what the message is about. Life is short, eternity is long, invest heavily in the latter. Life is short, eternity is long, invest heavily in the latter. As we look at a chapter like this, we begin to realize that God is going to usher in when he returns, a new heavens and a new earth. He's not going to just throw this place away. As I've said, he is going to restore this, and we will be back here. Revelation 21 says he's making all things new. He's not making new all things. He's making all things new. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. One of my favorite texts is it says in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. What was he looking for? He was looking for the heavenly city because right after that it says, and these all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this present world. We have to see ourselves as sojourners, as strangers in a very strange land. And it is strange. It's strange because the scriptures say our citizenship is in heaven. We are from a place we've never been. Does that strike you as a little strange? My citizenship isn't here. My citizenship is in heaven. We have to constantly be reminded of the truth of what God says about us, not what we think about us. What does God proclaim as true? This is why Paul could refer to his light and momentary afflictions. Boy, I complain all the time about my afflictions. He saw them as light and momentary because they had an eternal focus. He not only wrote Romans 8, he understood Romans 8. He was able to put it into practice. When God says something is true about us and we struggle believing it, it's still true. You call your bank to say you've, you've, you've uh, uh, finished out your, your monthly statements, you got a little question, you call your banker and you say, uh, uh, could you tell me what, how much I have in my checking account? And the banker says, yes, you've got uh, uh, $1 million. And you go, excuse me? 
Yeah, you have a million dollars in your checking account. I'm sorry, Mr. Banker. My checkbook says I have $8.25. Uh, you've made a mistake. And the banker says, we don't make mistakes. We're the bank. And everything at the end of the day, everything has to add up. There can't be one penny that's out of place, or we can't close things up. You have $1 million. Oh, Mr. Banker, that's absolutely crazy. I've got $8, and I've got it right here in my checkbook. Are you going to believe the bank's account of your account or your account of your account? I would still have trouble believing the bank. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> but this is what God says is true of me, not because of my human goodness, not because of my righteousness, but because of the fact that Christ has placed to my account his perfection. Now, if you've never put your faith in Christ, listen very, very carefully. I love from time to time, sit down at my computer when I get some crazy idea, and, I, and I'll write on it. Here's just a little paragraph that I've written. Perfection is the standard to enter into the kingdom of God. Perfection? Yes, perfection. This is the wisdom of a gospel standard. Guessing at the standard is not wisdom, but a blind leap in the dark. Guessing at the standard is cruel. Guessing at the standard keeps us up at night. Guessing at the standard defrauds the human race. Guessing at the standard is hide and seek on an eternal scale. Guessing at the standard leaves us groping in the dark. Guessing at the standard is a lie from the pit. Guessing at the standard creates religions and a moving target about human goodness. Guessing at the standard creates a judgmental spirit as to who might get in and who might not. Guessing at the standard creates a self-righteous approach as to why I qualify and you don't. Guessing at the standard is just that, guessing. Why would you want to guess when you can know? 1 John 5, 13, and these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. How do you know you have eternal life? It's when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and push all of the religion off the cliff. All of your good works, all of your church membership, all of your self-righteousness, you just chuck it. Because that's exactly what Paul says it is. He says it's dung. That's the word he uses, dung. But he says, you need the righteousness of Christ himself. And when you admit that you are lost, that you're in a hopeless state, that you can't save yourself, and you realize that all of your good works have nothing to do with entering heaven, and you humbly call upon him to save your soul, and you realize that he died and paid the penalty for sin, was buried and rose again the third day, you will be given as a gift everlasting life. And there will be, thou therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to share some thoughts this morning on this very, very important subject. And I pray that no one would leave here today without putting their full faith, hope, and confidence in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Not trusting in their good works or their church membership or anything, but Christ and Christ alone that they might be assured of passing from death unto life, being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son and realizing there is now therefore no condemnation in them. And Father, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.